up guys so a little bit of background on this episode i'm sitting down with my instructor from afs academy richmond 10th planet scott elliott he's been a master of martial arts he studied him in various forms going on really four decades now and I'd driven by this place. It's in Richmond, Kentucky on Big Hill Avenue. I'd driven by numerous times and just never, ever, for whatever reason, stopped in there to see and, and check it out. But after talking with Terrence for a little while um, before he passed away about diversifying my training, really improving self-defense and, and just a way to build confidence, uh, I decided to give it a shot, stopped in, started taking some courses, and really just gained such an appreciation for who Scott is, how he teaches, how he views the world. And I'm excited to share this episode with you today. So stay tuned. And as always, thanks for listening. If you don't mind, leave us five stars and a rating. Every little bit helps. Hope you're having an awesome day. Stay strong. Well, Scott, I'm glad you're here. For those that don't know, uh, this is my instructor at AFS Academy. Not very common that we can get together through the week because you're usually doing your normal gig at Eastern Kentucky University, but now you've got some time. What's the summer been like for you so far? Summer's been pretty busy. Um, as soon as the university thing ended, we had to hit full force into working. As you know, we have a building behind our gym that we've acquired. Uh, so we've really been doubling down and renovating that place. You know, it used to be an old flop house. Yeah. Uh, you saw a lot of the riffraff coming out of there, <laughs> drug dealings and all kinds of things. So it's been a lot of time cleaning that up. And uh, getting that ready so the students can use it for extra showers and bathrooms and storage. And if we have guests come in, they have a place to stay overnight if they don't want to go pay for a hotel room and things. And, yeah. Uh, helping Gina with her uh, stuff because she teaches at a my, – Gina, my wife, of course. She teaches at a preparatory school. And just like the regular school system, they go for an extra two or three weeks after the university lets out. So I run a lot of support for her and helping her with some of her endeavors. And we operate as a team. Yeah. So it's been a lot of physical work, right. uh, catching up on housework, things like that. But it also gives me a lot of downtime to do a lot more research, a lot more video training and studying on the latest things that are out. And that way I can bring it to you guys. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that I'm, I'm most excited to talk to you about because throughout my career in powerlifting, you know, from Boris Shako to Louis Simmons, I mean, the guys that were alive that were, you know, pushing the envelope on the coaching spectrum. Uh, I, I have a familiarity along with NFL coaches, some of the, the military special operations uh, instructors there. So I've seen coaching at a very high level. And I do classify you, even when you're not in my presence, to other people of, of how good of an instructor you are. Thank you. Um, and I think that really stems from a true mastery combined with an excitement and a curiosity within what you're doing because it, you know people can become great at something and kind of detest it as they go through it but right. i think you have a natural inclination towards martial arts you love it so kind of wanted to start out with an ode to my buddy logan hanks he always asks uh, his guests what their favorite movies are but i wondered what really kind of inspired you to get into martial arts I've always liked martial arts um, as a kid. I think I have the typical story of most guys getting into martial arts. You know, yeah. kind of a weaker, more frail kid. Picked on a lot, bullied, um, got in some fights, got beat up, came home crying to mom and yeah. all these things. Uh, would go to our library in grade school and look at the books on karate mm -hmm. and go home and try to study and practice and work in the cat stance, and the front stance, lunge, and go through all the different stuff. They never would take me to study martial arts when I was a kid. Yeah, We lived out in the country. We lived in a farm. Um and the next town over was where you had to go to study and they just wouldn't do it. So I had to do what I could on my own. Um, I could give you tons of stories of what led up to it, but eventually mama said, son, I'm not going to always be there to fight your battles for you. So 
I had to start learning to fight. And as soon as I had the ability, I started actually studying with a guy that was close to our high school um, and just kind of went from there. But always idolized Bruce Lee. Mm-hmm. You know, he was, I think, because I was in the 70s yeah. when I was a kid, everybody idolized, you know, the karate kung fu guys and Chuck Norris and Bruce Lee's and things. So, yeah. I guess typical martial arts story. Well, it's funny that you say the, this thing about the library and whatnot, because when I grew up, I mean, we definitely had food on the table and a roof over our heads, but we were, we were on the middle class to, to lower middle class spectrum. And I remember that was one of the arguments I used in my powerlifting seminars was, you know, when I was a kid, I read every, cause you know, powerlifting became this ultra sciencey hyper data driven thing, you know, kind of t- towards the end of my career. And that's cool. I mean, I, I look at it now through totally different eyes, but when I was in it, I was like, Oh, you just fucking lift hard. You go, yeah. you balls out. And like, that'll overcome the science, Sure, you know, but the argument I use as I got a little bit wiser after my injury was, uh, when I was a kid, I would read those karate instructional books front to back. Yeah. And I would note the pictures I could, I could make the shapes but it didn't mean I was a master of what I just understood. Right. So I was trying to tell people that like, you can get data driven all you want, but you have to do the practice. Sure. So it's, it's funny that you said that because uh, that really was the introduction to it for me. There used to be a Taekwondo or a Tai Chi place uptown. And then uh, through college, I took Tai Chi. That was more just yoga right. and like right. feel good stuff. <laughs> but, uh, and breathing. And, yeah. 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 But I'm curious as to when it, it kind of flipped for you. Cause I know you went to the military mm-hmm. uh, Were you already practicing martial arts at that point. Yes. Okay. So how long had you been practicing by the time you're 18 years old? 18, about five years. Yeah. So at what level or what skill would you say you were at at that point? Were you just still kind of going through the motions as you competed? No. Uh, the original stuff that I was doing back then was Wing Chun Kung Fu. Okay. And there really wasn't a lot of competitions. If you were doing sport karate, you could get into it. Yeah. Um, but the Wing Chun was a totally different type of art. It was much more, especially at that time, about a ballistic street fighting method. Sure. Matter of fact, it was kind of the antithesis of what they were about. Mm-hmm. You kind of poo-pooed competition. Right. Because street fighting is the the, the ultimate test and all these things. Um, and I was teaching some friends of mine, and I had gotten my black sash because, you know, it's, quite a bit easier to get your black belt in some of the striking arts, especially if they've been kind of watered down. Not that Wing Chun was watered down, because it definitely wasn't, but it's a very simplistic art. Mm -hmm. Like in karate, you have, depending on the style, 20, 40 different katas to learn. And the entire art of Wing Chun, weapons included, there's only six. Yeah. You have three empty hand forms. You have one on the wooden dummy and two weapons, and that's it. Yeah. So it was made to be very simple and concise for quick and easy learning. Um, but when I went to the military and I came out, that's when it really flipped. If you want to say that to where I wanted to really open my horizons to learn a lot more. Mm -hmm. Um, and idolizing Bruce Lee, wanting to learn his method and so on. I had no idea that his students that he certified to teach were actually teaching and not just teaching, but traveling the country, sharing what he was doing mm-hmm. that blew my mind. So I saw that Dan Osanto was going to be coming to Indianapolis, Indiana, 1994, I think it was for a seminar there. So I took some of my students at the time. We were learning mainly just straight up Wing Chun with some wrestling and things. We went and just had my mind blown for an entire weekend. It was 12 hour seminar yeah. in two days. That so was crazy. Uh, and that opened my eyes to not just Bruce Lee's own art, but, uh, Filipino Kali, you know, stick fighting, knife fighting, uh, Indonesian Silat, Muay Thai, 
Shuto, shoot wrestling, jujitsu. So, wow, that's just boom. So yeah. that opened a whole new path for me there. So did any of that infiltrate your career in the military? Did you, did you have any more combatives training or was it just strictly, you know, typical status quo for, for a guy going in as a grunt? Was it more like that for you? Yeah. When I w- went in at that time, um, we were still learning World War II style combatives, World War II, Vietnam. You know, yeah. we actually stood in line formations and put up the karate hands. And we literally yelled, kill. Yeah. So you have your right stance, kill, left stance, kill. And you're learning judo throws and you're learning how to take your E-tool and kill people with your E-tool and even fight with your helmet and all kinds of crazy yeah. stuff. So would you think that, because one of the things that I studied in college was uh, the mishaps of the government over the actual military structure, whereas they kind of lagged one behind, you know, when they looked at, you know, the South Pacific in World War II, they thought, oh, when we go into Korea, it's going to be hot as hell. Well, yeah. the guys froze to death. Right. And then it's like, oh, we're going into Vietnam and we froze to death in Korea. So they sent them like cold weather gear at first. And these guys went. So did you think that the based on your knowledge coming up for five, six years at this point through the, through your own training, did you think that the military was on point a little bit behind and not trying to insult the institution of the military, but like, did you think that they could have done more? And what would you maybe implement it with your knowledge now back then? Definitely behind. Yeah. Um, and I think the attitude back then was similar to what a lot of law enforcement have been doing up until very, very recently is we don't need to spend a lot of time on this. That's why we have guns. That's why we have other tools to uh, enhance our, you know, soldiers fighting ability. Mm-hmm. Matt Larson um, was the guy who started implementing the new army combatives, yeah. which is based in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu first level one. And I thought that was a great thing because the techniques are going to be much more fighting effective. Mm-hmm. And you can take somebody who has no idea how to fight. You take some maybe pampered kid, city kid, whatever, uh, that has never fought. And in the old way, we're going to learn the World War II style combat. If someone throw you in a pit yeah. and you're going to fight. Now say pit, the people think like in the movies, they got pit. It was basically a sandy or sawdust area with some um, telephone poles encircling it. Mm-hmm. And you get in there and you duked it out or you pugil stick it out. Well, if you have somebody that's not really ever fought, they're not just naturally tough. All you do is get their ass kicked mm-hmm. and then they get gun shy, so to speak, yeah. with actual physical violence anymore at all. Um, but you take somebody who's never fought and teach them jujitsu and they can progressively learn how to deal with conflict and contact and get rough and get good. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was a much, much better system rather than just trying to teach somebody a bunch of kill moves that like they, they used to always tell us, and of course, when I was a drill sergeant, we told them that too, you learn just enough to get yourself hurt. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's all it did. So did you see like amongst your peers in the military, uh, after the combatives training, did you see them wanting to test it a little bit more? Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. We go back to the barracks and the guys who are used to rough housing and all these things, you're always playing with the moves. Right. And a lot of us that had studied martial arts, we're going back to the barracks saying why this would work or why that wouldn't work. And then we're sparring in the barracks or whatever. Of course, if you're talking about in boot camp, you're doing that when the drill sergeant's not around. Yeah. But you know, a lot of these guys that go to their units and they've either got some sort of training program implemented there um, or a bunch of guys just get together and trade information, kind of a mixed martial arts type thing. Um, it's rarely ever a SOP that this is what they're going to be learning. Right. You know, with, with the jujitsu, I think it does help. Um, but yeah, you would definitely try to test the moves and see what worked and what didn't. So how long did you serve, uh, in, in total? 
two years of the active. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I went to reserves. Okay. So at what point, what's the timeline here just for people that are listening? Because what I want to talk to you about primarily throughout this is one, getting people interested in jujitsu and martial arts Two, uh, doing a competition and talking to you a little bit about that. And then as well as just kind of your progression through owning the gyms and having the, the team and all this kind of stuff as far as the competition and really what defines you. So if anybody's out there that's interested in any of that, keep listening because what we're going to start with now is just kind of the progression from, okay, he's now a professional man. He's out of the military. You're on your way. So what does that look like in those transition years out of the military into civilian life? And when did the gym start? Well, I joined uh... – I was a knothead, so I joined the military when I was 17 as a junior in high school. Okay. I, we had split option. Yeah. So uh, I was a real genius that I went spent my junior summer in boot camp. <laughs> and then we had to come back and finish our senior year. Yeah. And then we go to right to your advanced training as soon as you graduate. What was that like for you, like having really gone into the world of men and then having to come back to? It, it was a little shocking, of course. Um, I wasn't the only one, mm-hmm. so you're not the only 17 year old there. There's a, quite a few others, um, but you grow up real quick. You come back cock strong, yeah, a little brainwashed, right? Um, because the whole time we're there, at least back then, you you're learn you're learning how, in a sense, you're better than your civilian friends. Mm-hmm. You know, your buddies are right here. Yeah, those boys back home aren't your buddies. Those boys are, you know, screwing your girls. They're sitting back and drinking a Coke while you're down in the dirt and blah, blah, blah. So you come back a little bit different, you know, civilian scum. Yeah. Right. Kind of thing, you know, Jody. Yeah. <laughs> um, then you graduate high school, you roll back to AIT, then you're off to serve your duty or whatever. Um, that also gave me rank quicker, mm-hmm. which allowed me to go to drill sergeant school. I got a slot for that. Um, so I went as an E4, graduated as a E5, came out as a drill sergeant and hit the trail and then desert storm hit. So we were training those guys to go overseas. So being a drill sergeant made it to where I never really went overseas, unfortunately. Sure. Fortunately and unfortunately. That's yeah. one of those mixed things. Uh, when I got out, I went to college and, like I said, started teaching, training people, opened the gym in, I think it was 94. I had to look back at the business license, but that's what we just getting ready to have our 30th year anniversary come up. Sure. And... I've been just doing that ever since. Like I was going to school and I'd already been, always been an artist. Mm-hmm. So I'd already opened my first business while I was still in college. I'd opened up an airbrush business. I was doing custom painting in that same building we're in now. Yeah. And teaching martial arts part-time. Mm-hmm. While I was doing that, you know, you have a lot of life questions and choices. This is what I want to do with the rest of my life. I just want to paint because I was doing everything from murals on vehicles to signs to t-shirts, yep. teaching in the back. Uh, I started studying a little bit of judo with the guy who taught on campus at the time, met him through a friend of mine. And uh, he eventually introduced me to like uh, Anthony Robbins, Mm -hmm. Unlimited Power. And I had read that book and man, that just changed my whole world on having the confidence to open up a full blown business and pursue this martial arts thing as a business. Mm -hmm. And the reason I wanted to do that was, again, kind of questioning my life. Is this what I want to do? Do I want to turn around and be 80, 85 years old and say, wow, I've painted a lot of stuff. Right. Um, but I had a student that really, really struck it home to me. He was an older black dude. Mm-hmm. And uh, his name was Ernest Williams. Coincidentally, I saw him about two months ago. And yeah. I'm pretty funny. But he's working at the Bluegrass Army Depot. And he, he came to me and said, you know, man, the doctor tells me that I've got a lot of health problems and wants me to be physically active. And I thought about, you know training in martial arts. So he got in there and getting in better shape and getting more active. 
And one day he comes in and says, Sifu, you know, Sifu is the Chinese title for teacher. Sure. You know, he says, I, I want to tell you, man, I was, uh, I was in one of those silos the other day where they keep the weapons and stuff. And I saw a little mouse and I was trying to get this mouse. I was jumping out and realized, wow, I'm playing. Yeah. I haven't played since I was a young boy. And that's what I just want to tell you, man, that you've really changed my life. Mm-hmm. Man, that hit me hard. Sure. Yeah, it really, really did. Um, still makes me get misty when I start thinking about it. Yeah. I'm like, well, this, <clears throat> this is a far more empowering thing, being able to add quality to someone's life through sure. something that's so dear to me. Mm-hmm. Like, this is what I want to do. I, you know. Well, that's what I told you um, last year at the, the cookout. You know, whenever you gave Adam his black belt and AJ got his black belt and whatnot. And that was just a really good day for me. And I've told you, I, you know, I think – I even had an Instagram post a couple of years ago where just through reflection and, and wondering why things didn't always line up for me, I really le- never learned how to make friends. I never, ever had to make friends in my life and maintain friendships because I was always a pretty good athlete. So throughout my, you know, my youth peewee sports and on all that stuff and all the way up, I kept acclimating to my teammates. They were my friends for the season and right. then the season would change. And then I wouldn't see these kids until the baseball season, you know, so I never, because I fundamentally suck as a friend. I, I've understood that about myself quite a bit, but it's because if, if you text me, I'll text you all day long, but I don't do that kind of outreach kind of thing. Yeah. And all throughout my career as a power lifter and whatnot, and you understand this owning the gym, there's an ever evolving door of people in and out, in and out. So at some point it, be, it became like, well, don't invest in these people because they're just going to leave. Yeah. So I just kind of became a little bit wondering about myself of like, why am I the way that I am? How can I change that? But I never really had anything post-injury that even mirrored the the family feel of the gym. And, uh, you know, just having a place where you, you know you're going to see the same faces, the same people. Um, you're going to see people come. You're going to see people go. But you're going to see people rise and, and do better. And I even told you that. I was like, man, I felt so honored to be there when Adam got his belt and AJ got their belts because I understood you know, that I was a part of this thing, even if it was five roles with Adam over the last year, somehow, some way I got to be a part of that, you know, and I was very, very thankful. So to echo what you're talking about, I I still sense that from the people in the gym that they very much appreciate what you do. We got an unbelievably interactive group there. So do you think, and not to jump too far off topic, but do you think that that is a tribute to yourself, your own personality, or is it something you've cultivated or is it just something that the martial arts lends to the students? I think it's a little bit of both. Okay. Um, and I think anytime you're in a physical activity where, you know, if we're going to physically be in contact with each other, like we are, it automatically makes it more intimate. Mm-hmm. And you know, the old, old thing of anytime you're going through hardships with people, you ha- start having a better bond. Mm-hmm. But I think martial arts and specifically jujitsu just brings it up even more because of that contact. Uh, and as I've made posts before, even video posts, this is a team. Yeah. You know, like powerlifting for the most part, you're on your own. Right. I mean, you you have gyms and you have other guys helping to motivate you and so on. And they're helping you some. But jujitsu, you literally cannot get better at it without having good teammates. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and I do think some of it is is partly due to myself being a leader, mm-hmm. because usually the culture of the gym is dictated by the attitude of the instructor, the head coach. And a lot of that I'll, I'll, I'll flat out say uh, is attributed to my wife. Mm-hmm. She's really helped me learn more empathy, mm-hmm. see different sides of the coin. Um, and like the sentiment you said of 
well, people are going to leave anyway, so why, why invest anything in them? Right. I've had that attitude. I've heard that attitude mentioned in our gym by other advanced people. Mm-hmm. And now I try to say it doesn't matter because whatever you invest in somebody is always going to benefit them. Yeah, yeah. And in some way, it's going to always come back to you, mm-hmm. whether it's word of mouth, they may come back later, whether it's your own personal energy you're putting off, whatever. Um, so I think it's a combination of both for sure. Yeah, well, you know, that's one thing I see you and Gina really, I mean, just from the outside looking in, seem to just work together so well. You communicate, um, you handle the gym, like you're, you're always kind of in this ever never-ending wheel of just working together. We uh, fake it a lot. Yeah, I understand, <laughs> I understand that. No. But do you think that um, do you think that you would be doing the things that you're doing now without our support? I think I'd still be doing the martial arts for sure. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'll ever quit. Uh, there's no retirement point in this. Much like you know, the great Elio Gracie was on the mats until he died. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that I'd be as successful. Sure. It's because again, she's completed that side of me mm-hmm. that a lot of people have noticed. Sure. Like yourself, you know, people that have known me for a long time, we have students come back and be like, man, you're a lot nicer now. Yeah. You know, well, do you think that that is a, a sign of the times? Does it, do you think that that benefited you as an instructor to maybe reach more people? Um, or do you think it was just getting a little bit older and seeing the world through different eyes? There again, another combination. Yeah. Yeah. yeah a little bit older, a little bit wiser, a mm-hmm. little bit softer. Uh, we have to like even teaching the EKU, I, rant about this all the time, how I've taught there for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And there's a definite difference in the culture of the students coming in now than it was 20 years ago. Yeah. Even the staff, uh, my, my department chair and so on, <clears throat> their attitudes towards how we teach retention strategies has softened. Yeah. I hate, hate to use that word, but that's just the case. So, uh, I've had to grow in many ways and sure for both reasons but do you think that that lends to you being able to talk to because this is something i always struggled with Mm -hmm. as a coach myself was one of the questions that i would ask on my my entry form for working with me as as an athlete was what what is your ultimate goal like if there was no barrier of life to to reach your goal what do you want to be and of course everyone world champion or world record holder so and i just remember i would cut like terrible dick i would cut people after a couple of weeks, if they would send me something, it was like, well, I got here and it got hard. So I just kind of moved on a set or whatever. And I was like, look, you lied to me. You don't want to be a world champion. And that, and it alienated a lot of people. And it kind of elevated that self-perception of like, I'm a badass, like I don't need this yeah. shit kind of thing. But as I started to soften, I guess is, is the right word. And just understand I'm more interested in helping this individual climb their mountain mm-hmm. than climb the mountain. Yeah. And when that change happened for me as a coach, I started to feel a lot better about the work I was doing. I started to have better relationships with my clients because yeah. for me, I know what it took for me and it, it blew my life apart many times yeah. and, and blew my body apart many times. But I don't think the average person signing up for a 12 week coaching program was assuming that that was what they wanted for their lives when they right. said those things. So for me, that was a big shift. But how do you kind of juggle the athlete that you, that comes in through your doors that maybe wants to say, I'm just a hobbyist, uh, you know, and I can think of one guy right now, love rolling with him. He's super strong, super good guy, but he just doesn't have the desire to compete. And I don't know if that is because he um, he doesn't want to get further into it and take up more time or, you know, if it's just like it, it's like me with barbell squats. Like it's, no matter how good I feel today, if I go down there and I squat, say 400 pounds, I remember how 400 pounds used to feel 
and it's going to make me feel bad about today. Right, you know, right. so I don't know if it's that for him or not. But if you have somebody that you know could probably do well in competition, could probably elevate their game by competing here and there. How do you tread that line of balancing them out between hobbyist and competitor? It's hard. Yeah. It's hard because I have a lot of the same inner feelings that you do. Mm-hmm. Like I want them to see their best. Mm-hmm. I want them to be their best. I know what it takes. Yeah. Um, for the most part, if somebody is just wanting to practice jujitsu for fun, I love that. Yeah. And I get as much enjoyment. Seriously, I do. I get as much enjoyment seeing the average person come in there and just improve. Mm-hmm. As I do seeing somebody go up and win a championship, whether it's MMA or Jiu Jitsu or whatever. Where it starts bothering me is when somebody says they have this goal, mm-hmm. but they don't want to put the work in. Sure. They want to train like the average hobbyist mm-hmm. and still say they want to go fight or they want to go compete. And that's where I have a hard time not getting angry, mm-hmm. hard feelings, whatever, because you know, you want to do this and you're gonna go there and put our name on the line and your name, my name, and, and you're not training and it's difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes I feel like I just have to step away and let them learn the hard way. Yeah. Now you want to do this? Okay, go ahead for it. But I can't do that. Right. It's like, you know, my son's getting ready to fight for his first fight in August if he gets a match. And uh, I've warned him, it's going to be hard because yeah. I'm going to expect a lot out of you because I don't want to see him get in that cage and get hurt. Right. So that's a different attitude. But for the most part, it kind of goes back to Gina's ability to help me be more empathetic, mm-hmm. try to understand that not everybody has that kind of time. Not everybody has that kind of desire. Some dudes, the way they come in, they just, they just want to say they did it once. Sure. They just want to compete once or whatever. So I try not to put the same standards on them mm-hmm. as like say Adam. Yeah. Yeah. Adam definitely wants to be a world champion mm-hmm. and he's going after it. So I expect, which I don't really have to say anything to Adam. He's in the gym every single day, whatever it makes it easy. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's probably the hardest part is when somebody's goals are not congruent with their actions. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, I think that the, the thought of the combative aspect of martial arts and whatnot sometimes leads people in, more into the thought mindset of, of just self-defense, mm-hmm. you know, because martial arts can be like attacking and inoffensive, whereas self-defense is like, I'm only doing this to protect myself. Right. And I think for, for better or for worse, I think a lot of females have been kind of trained that you don't need a martial art. You just need self-defense. Yeah. And, for the people that listen to this, I think it's very important to distinguish that one self-defense can be great, Mm -hmm. but most of the time it's a two or three day course, just a couple hours here and there. You get your certificate in the mail a week later, you take the photo for the Instagram and then it's gone and forgotten forever. And not to say that you won't retain some of that, but how as an instructor that's observed people for years and years and years, and as an athlete that's practiced, how important do you think that repetition work is for even retaining a weekend certification, like how often would you suggest that they go about trying to re- rehash that information? Or do you think that self-defense is a gateway drug to martial arts? Yeah. That's a, that's a big question. Well, I'm good at that. Yeah, I, yeah. Usually, <laughs> I usually layer three or four in there. So. <laughs> so it's like when somebody comes to me and says, how long will it take me to be good? Okay. Well, what do you call good? Mm-hmm. Beating a UFC fighter. Uh, it's like if you're a basketball player, is good at uh, the NBA level, is it college levels, a high school level, whatever. And self defensive fighting ability is the same thing. Like, well, I want to learn how to defend myself against who? Mm-hmm. If you're taking just a weekend self defense seminar, that's going to be okay against a certain level of person, mm-hmm. you know, but a weekend seminar on self defense is not going to help you against a serious threat. Mm-hmm. 
And you know, you know, intellectually, that's what they want to be able to do. Right. So I think that self-defense can be a good gateway thing. Like whenever we do a self-defense thing, we're going to teach some moves, a lot of mental stuff, mm-hmm. being aware of your surroundings. So, but we always emphasize if you're serious about this, you need to try to get into a class where you're doing this on at least a semi-regular basis. Mm-hmm. If you can just train once a week, yeah, that will be infinitely better than one weekend and you never touch it again. Right. You know, so it's not an easy thing. I hate, I hate the thing of self-defense. Sure. Because they try to differentiate that between that and learning how to fight. And there is no difference. Right. If you're truly wanting to just defend yourself and that's it, you're probably better off spending a lot more time learning firearms. Yeah. You know, learning some sort of weapons to never get yourself in that engagement. But in the what if case, Sometimes you have to have a hand-to-hand ability too. Well, that's one of the things that I really appreciate appreciate about the way that you teach. It's almost like you have jujitsu, cage, and street scenarios, yeah. and, and you cover all of those things. For somebody who's sitting on the fence, maybe uh, someone who doesn't own a gun, what avenue would you give them? You know, just laying out, understanding situational awareness. You know, what martial art would you encourage? You know, because you instruct Muay Thai, you instruct jujitsu. What do you think the the average person who's just truly wanting to say, I've got two days a week, I can dedicate to self-defense, self-preservation. I'm never going to own a gun. What do you you feel about that? I would, I would echo Jocko Willink Mm -hmm. and saying jujitsu first. Yeah. Same thing as the army does jujitsu first, because this is where I would defer back to even my original art of Wing Chun. Mm -hmm. Wing Chun is a very close range art. So, when you look at a Taekwondo, karate, these types of martial arts, they start from the outside. They're far away from each other. And they dance around, they throw a punch, they throw a kick, and they dance back out in the outside perimeter. And if they engage and get in close proximity, let's say clinch work, mm-hmm. that's when the referee jumps in, stops it, and breaks it back up. So uh, those martial arts never really get good in the clinch, mm-hmm. the grappling portion even. Wing Chun started off directly. We're already in contact with each other. I can hit you, can hit me. It's very close range. We start off with the hands in contact with each other. So you get very comfortable fighting on the inside. Mm-hmm. And then after you've trained for a while on the inside, you learn to step away from each other and then break that distance over and over again. But you're very comfortable. Like there's an old saying of Wing Chun is comfortable in a phone booth because mm-hmm. you come from Hong Kong, right. extremely crowded, no oh, space. Yeah. A lot of those Hong Kong martial artists, they had to go to the rooftops to have enough area to even practice and spar. Oh, wow. The rooms, if you look at some of the old pictures of uh, Bruce Lee's original teacher, Yip Man, you'll see there's very few pictures around of them, but they're watching class. What you find out is the people you see standing and watching class are pressed up against a wall. And they said that their studio, their kun, as they call it, instead of a dojo, is literally the size of like your living room. Yeah. So you get a group of people that are trying to practice a martial art the size of a living room. There's no room. There's no space. Yeah. So getting back to jujitsu, you're already practicing in the worst possible scenario. Mm-hmm. If you get sucker punched and you come back to consciousness just enough and somebody's sitting on your chest punching you in the face, karate is not going to help you now. Right. Boxing is not going to help you now. None of that's, you know, you're already that, that proverbial shit has hit the fan. Yeah. So you get very comfortable in that close range. Now, after you've done that, we can work on avoidance, staying away, some long-range stuff. You know, there's some basic self-defense stuff, even traditional, if you want to call it that, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. But the meat of it is that close range because let's go back to what I said earlier. 
defend yourself against who? It's really easy to defend yourself against somebody your size or even better, smaller. Mm -hmm. But what if they're bigger than you? What if they're 300 pounds and you're 150? Right. You're not going to hit them hard enough to stop them. Right. So they're going to close the distance. They're going to be on top of you. Now what? Yeah. And that's that's one of the worst case scenarios, right? A woman wakes up in her bed and a man is snuck into her house on top of her trying to rape her. Right. She's going to have to know something like this. So that first. Yeah. And I think that, you know, just hearing you break it down makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I just think that a lot of people have this. Greg Walsh from Wolf Brigade, he talks yeah. about it, the, the tiger inside. These people think that like, oh, I'll see red and I'll just be able yeah. to do whatever. Yeah. Have you ever really seen anybody at a, you know, at a high level or even at a, a medium level rise beyond their training? I mean, do you ever see that very often? Like they might, they might get a moment, but like for me, just, just for my own reflection, I have to like, the more I go, the more I retain, the more I retain, the more I can apply. Sure. And even, even having the, the break from hunting that was like the never ending season and then coming back, I even told you I had some changes about how I was trying to do things because I understood even my original approach to jujitsu was probably flawed because as much as I wanted to learn the techniques, when I got in deep water, I would revert to that tiger inside, which was my strength rather than using the technique. And then now coming back to it, probably still messing that up some, but I understand better now that slow, smooth, smooth is fast. And the technique is always going to outperform. I was watching, um, some of Gordon's stuff uh, yesterday that reminded me some of the situations I've been in with Adam Mm -hmm. and just where I'm trying to just overpower this guy. I'm saying this to the guys who think they're big and strong, who just think that I'll just overpower some guy. Adam's what, 175, 180 pounds, maybe. Yeah. somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And just kind of long and lean. And um, I have a real, I mean, obviously he's, he's a master, you know, and it's, it's a very, very definitive difference when he grabs a hold of me or you grab a hold of me than say a Jordan or somebody who's, who's a strong guy, who's got good hands, who can put pressure on you. But just knowing those pressure points, knowing those technique maneuvers, I think people need to, to kind of step away from the idea that because they've seen some, they've seen blood sport, yeah. you know, they could win a Kumite kind of thing. But I, I even admit to my, to you right now, like that was some of my own perception was like, I've watched a lot of fighting. I've been in fights. I've had my ass kicked. I've won some, but I've also, probably overestimated my abilities by a long shot just naturally without training. What do you, what do you say to the person? And I know we've talked about some guys that we know, you know, uh, we each know that have come there that just didn't have the ego for it. So you got a big, strong guy, or you've got a a woman who's a bit afraid who doesn't have, you know, maybe the confidence where a guy has an overconfidence. How do you try to work those two from different angles? The guys, we definitely run into that a lot, of course. Sure. Um, and all you can do with them is get them on the mat if they will. Um, because trying to talk logic doesn't really work because they're already so convinced. Like right. you said, oh, man, but I, when I get mad, I just see red, you know, and I just, <laughs> that's precisely what's going to cause you to get beat. Yeah. Because you're going to blow your wad so quick. You're going to gas out. You're going to do the wrong choice. You're going to do the wrong decisions. You know, we instinctively do certain things that, as you know by now, are wrong in jujitsu. Sure. You know, like trying to just grab somebody's head in a headlock. Like, <laughs> that gets you in deep water really quick. Um, and it's not to say that if they got a lucky punch in. Sure. You know, that if they're big and strong, they do some serious damage, right? But uh, if you've trained enough, you learn how to mi- mitigate that a lot and take someone right into your deep waters. And then now they're just a 
cat and mouse game. Yeah. You know, and you won't, you won't know that until you feel it. Mm-hmm. That's why there's so many stories out there of all the, the big, strong dudes. who thought that would happen. They just get on the mat and go. And, and some egos can't handle it. Right. They, they walk out and they go back to their own little safety of whatever their world is. Mm-hmm. And I'll be honest, we've, we've picked on the weightlifters a lot because it's one of the worst ones that the ego rages. Yep. They can go to the gym, they can squat five, 600 pounds and feel like a big man. They yep. come in there and a little skinny guy taps them out, man. That's hard to handle. Well, I, I remember, you know, when I first started, so just to kind of give people an honest assessment, I remember Linda tapped me. She's 130 pounds, 125, whatever she, she is. Yeah. yeah she's maybe 120. Yeah, yeah. But she is, I mean, she's aggressive. She's a cagey fighter. I mean, she's a really savvy martial artist. And then Emily, mm-hmm. uh, Emily gave me some fits at times. So, I mean, even going in there uh, bigger than I am now, I was 250, I think, when I started, wow. um, you know, going up against skilled women or going up against Chris, you know, he's what, 150 pounds, 160, maybe? He's right at 150. Yeah. yeah. So, and he's a high school kid. Yeah. And and he worked me over and on and on and on. But the, the thing that's really cool about jujitsu to me is there's, it's immediately over. Once you tap, it's immediately over. You can even have discussion about what you did wrong, how they caught you, and then you can build again because yeah. you can go right back at it, right back at it. And it really is it's, – it's its own unique thing as far as an athletic endeavor. And I don't even know if I would call it that. It is, but it oh, isn't. Sure. It's, it's more of a – I think it's a total human endeavor. Like yeah. there's a lot of menta- mentality to it. There's even probably some spirituality to it as well as the physicality of it. But each of those things to me, it, it really – it probably served me more as a man – having those, those feelings and those walls broken down because man, you know, like I said, I've been in fights against big, strong dudes in bars, but how much better would they have gone if I'd have known a little bit of this or how much, right. how much less pain would I have felt if I'd have known a little bit, but more of this or that. But I think the one thing that, that interests me most about your approach is you just have such a way of, you know, and we've started doing the month system where we work on specific things for a month and that builds into the next month and the next month. You just have a really great way of breaking it down for people. Do you ever find yourself, because the information is just evolving so quickly now with jujitsu growing, do you ever feel like your own assessment of the knowledge or, or the ability to convey the knowledge is becoming obsolete because it is rapidly changing? Or do you constantly commit to learning the new stuff? I know the answer, but I think people need to know it. <laughs> the fundamentals never change. Right. It doesn't matter for shooting or whatever, is fundamentals never change. Um, you might have a tweak here and there, uh, but it's the outer peripheral stuff mm-hmm. that keeps evolving, the more advanced game, you know, the special cases of this and that. So the the stuff that I've learned in the past, the fundamentally, mm-hmm. as well as the previous advanced knowledge stands on its own, but is enhanced with the new stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm always looking at the newest stuff. We live in this day and age where I think you'd be an idiot if you weren't. If you weren't getting yeah. every instruction, get your hands on, if you were studying fights and YouTubes uh, to, to bring in the new material. But when I watch it, I'm not just isolating the newest stuff because I've got years of experience in other things. And sometimes putting those two together will bring us some pretty unique insights. Mm-hmm. At least as far as when it clicks off in my brain and how well I can convey that to my students sure. a lot of times may, may vary. Um, but 
I like to dabble in both worlds. That's why when I teach, I'll say, okay, this is some old school. Yeah, yeah. Still highly effective. Or this is some of my catch wrestling influence I had, but put it with the jujitsu and now look at the different flavor you can get into. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of instructors are that way, especially in 10th Planet, because a lot of us have prior experience and we blended in with the newest stuff. Yeah. How do you feel that the, the martial arts that you, you know, just give me a list of the martial arts that you would say that you're at least capable in. Wing Chun, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jun Fan, Jeet Kune Do, Bruce Lee's physical art. Kali, that's the stick and knife work, the weapons work of the Philippines. Muay Thai is a big one. Mm-hmm. French box, Francais Savat, the French kickboxing. I, when I spar, stand up, I go between the different striking arts. I don't, I can't isolate one, mm-hmm. but I like to go back between them all. Uh, and of course, Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, shoot wrestling is another spent a lot of times with a sense of Eric Paulson, yep. which is heavy into the catch wrestling as well as old school jujitsu and things, but those make up the bulk of it. So if you had a, if you had a chance, you know, and I know you've battled some injuries over the last few years and whatnot, but if you had a chance where you woke up one day and you felt really, really good and you knew you'd feel good for 10 or 12 weeks for a, for a camp, which, which discipline would you want most to compete in? If you could just be at your absolute best. If I had to pick one? If you had to pick like, one. Like is MMA included in that? Uh, <laughs> no, because that's – yeah. I mean, I, would that be the one, MMA? I mean, yeah, because you get to use all the tools. Yeah. You know, I love jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. And that'd be – if I had to pick one of the others, that'd be it. Yeah. I would, I'd want to compete just in jiu-jitsu. Yeah. Um, it's such a much more vast art and a more interesting art to me mm-hmm. than other things because of the way it evolves and changes. And there's so many different facets, so many different ways you can play it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's not just one way to do it. That's what's really cool about it. But sometimes it'd be nice if I could just punch you right now. Yeah, man. You know, man, if I could just throw a kick or a knee or an elbow or even a headbutt. Yeah. Yeah. What do you get from a competitive role? Like when somebody really pushes you or tests you, um, what do you get from that? Like, cause I know when I was coming up in powerlifting, it was almost a fear driven thing. Like don't miss a slip because you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But then as I became a you know, professional level lifter, um, I remembered to like take it in a little bit more, like the experience yeah. of like, man, I'd wrap my wrist and I'd be looking at the crowd and like, don't forget this stuff. Like when you're in a really competitive match where somebody is not only stretching your limits of your capability, but also, um, maybe helping you actualize some of your capability by putting you in certain positions. What's going through your head? Is it just a pure kind of like a adrenal survive or is it, do you, do you appreciate what's happening as it's happening? You appreciate what's happening. Yeah. Um, because there again, there's so many ways to do it. Right. So let's say you got mad at me during the gym and you said you wanted to really go at it and so on. You're a big, strong dude. I'd have to be real mad. <laughs> <laughs> but, so what, what it would be more of is, well, Let's see what he's got. Let's yeah. play some defense. Mm-hmm. Let's let him work. Let's see how tired he gets, how quick he gets tired, mm-hmm. and see where it takes us. Yeah. You know, I don't try to force the issue into a certain pigeonhole area. Mm-hmm. You know, so you, you just want to see, like, okay, see what they've got. Where, where, where are we going with this? It's more fun in jujitsu a lot of times to just let them work. Yeah. And let them kind of, in a sense, tap themselves. Yeah. You make a mistake, you put yourself in a bad spot. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, um, it's been a long, long, long time since anybody's been able to actually go at me and cause any, like what you would call fear. Yeah. There's never really fear, mm-hmm. you know, because if your defense is tight, it's going to be really hard to hurt you. Yeah. That's why a jujitsu is defense first. And I don't mean to sound egotistical. Some no, no, no. Say, I'll try and fuck you up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's just, you you 
when you've rolled with so many people, so many different sizes, so many different strengths. Now it's a, it's a study in force. It's a study in what are they going to do? Yeah. How are they going to move? What are they going to try to do? Well, as, as open as it seems, you know, I was watching, like I said, I was watching a lot of different matches yesterday, but you see the the brunt of the same positions over and over and over. And then you'll see some of the, you know, the Barambolos or some of the more fancy right. maneuvers or the high flying stuff. But it's like, you know, watch when I watch you even demonstrate, you're so fluid. Is that is that something that a lot of you think guys in the weightlifting side or the powerlifting side miss is the fluidity and the, the flexibility, the movement that is needed for jujitsu? Like, because I, I know a lot of guys, there's there's this big battle online about lifting weights and jujitsu. You know, mm-hmm. you don't want to get too big, you don't want to get too tight. Which which would you kind of lean towards if you had to pick one or the other, more fluidity and movement or a little bit stronger? I got to pick one. Yeah, yeah, man. <laughs> because I think both are are good. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, to make an ideal athlete, you know. Um, I, I hate to say it's really hard because if I had if I had to pick one, be fluidity of movement. Sure. Because how can you be technical without having fluidity? Right. And that's what jujitsu is. If if all you're going to do is try to Hulk smash, mm-hmm. you're not really doing jujitsu. Yeah. You know, it's it's trying to force a square peg in a round hole. Right. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things, you know, just a shameless plug for my friend Greg Walsh, you know, mm-hmm. at Wolf Brigade, that's one of the, the core tenets of his system is to to strengthen what is yeah. and build slightly. So, you know, he understands from a martial art perspective, you don't want to necessarily put on mass just for the sake of mass. You're right. not a bodybuilder. You want you want strength. And the brunt of his program is around tensile strength and hand strength and the forearm strength and the shoulder maneuverability and whatnot. So I think that that's been one of the the perfect blends for me is like when I first started, I was still training very conventionally, you know, doing bodybuilding type workouts and whatnot. And some with Terrence had started to shift some of that. Um, but I was still, I wanted to be big. I wanted to be strong. And then when Terrence passed away and I kind of evolved at Greg's system and uh, was talking to Bo Sandoval out at the, U- uh, the UFC Performance Institute, he found the mace work, he found Greg's work, and then some of the fighters started picking it up. I knew that it, there had to be more to it than I was seeing. And that's when I kind of went back with a different set of eyes and was like, this is just making what you are stronger. Yeah. And I think that for, for a jujitsu artist or a martial artist, I think that has to be the balance. Like strength is so critical in that situation, but you also need to be able to move it, sure. you know? And um, I think for, for some of the kids that I see, I admire the kids class because they're just so flexible and it's like for the sake that they don't even know better. They're right. just, they just bend and twist and whatever, but having injuries yourself, understanding I have some injuries. Um, somebody's listening that, that might be fearful of getting injured further or not being able to access the sport because of injury. I mean, I know you've got some stories of guys that you've seen do incredible things, you know, uh, in lieu of the injury. Mm-hmm. So what would your encouragement to be, to be someone that maybe was on the fence about it because of a previous injury history? You can always work with and around your injuries. Um, there's people that do jujitsu with one arm missing mm-hmm. or legs are paralyzed or whatever. I mean, I'm very, very good at it because Higa Machado, uh, one of my former teachers, not former teachers, but I just haven't trained with him in a long, long time, mainly with his brother, John Jock, mm-hmm. until Eddie Bravo, of course. He said, you, you make jujitsu fit you. You don't fit jujitsu. Jujitsu is not a thing of you have to do it this way. And it goes back to what I said of it's so multifaceted, so many ways to do it that if you've got an injury, learning to work around that 
is part of the learning process because we're going to always have limitations. And a limitation could be that you're 150 and your opponent's 300. Yeah. That is a limitation. You have to learn how to work around that. You can't just beat your head against the wall. So it can definitely still be something that you get tons of enjoyment out of, help your mobility even more, develop a great self-defense skill and so on. So I don't, I don't think it has to limit you. Plus, you and I both have injuries because we come from a younger, dumber time. Yeah. So when somebody's coming up, if they have the wisdom, intelligence, whatever, to actually listen when we're giving you advice, say, hey, don't do that. Yeah. That'll hurt you. They're going to go a lot further than what a lot of us did. Yeah, I think um, I think one of the, the benefits of some of the data and whatnot, and even really just the visibility of the sport, is you can observe a lot of high-level players and see what they're doing. And I think, you know, it's, it's probably like a bell curve. You know, there's, there's certain people that are doing all the stuff, and then there's fringe stuff over on the sides. Like, yeah. I would say, I mean, I don't know Nicky Rod's training schedule, but it seems like he's more weight. Like he, he likes training with weights and whatnot. And then you have somebody like uh, Lachlan Giles, who just seems to be more of that fluidity, the yoga, the body weight type stuff. Right. So it's, it, it appeals to all sides. But I would argue for someone with injury, you're already at a minus one right. if a fight breaks out in the street. Like yeah. you, you're already – and knowing this just from the class and just from some of the situations I've been in, that fear element begins to kick in almost immediately like – You've got to protect the leg. I've got to position myself in this way. And it just becomes a, a back burning thought that shouldn't even be there. Like you should, yeah. you should already have a skill set. So I think if you're injured, I think if you're a smaller frame person, I definitely think if you're female, I think if you're a big egotistical guy, um, jujitsu or some form of martial arts can benefit you. But I think jujitsu is one, uh, as Sifu said, it just starts with that intimate contact where you're, you're engaged. Someone's laying on top of you. Someone's got you in side control. They're choking you, breaking your arm. They got a leg, whatever it is. And learning to stay calm and think in those situations where the the cost can be, you know, not necessarily in training, but the cost can be steep um, is, is a great way to really set yourself apart from the injury itself. Like being able to say, okay, I am, have had injury, but I can still do these things and defend against these things. Um, we talked a lot about your jujitsu, but I know you got a lot of other interests outside of the gym and outside of that too. I know you're you're into uh, some of the action figures, like the uh, the superhero type characters and whatnot. Where did that stem from? Is that is that like a lifelong thing for you? Yeah, going back to being a kind of a frail kid. Yeah, yeah. You know, my favorite when I was young was Spider Man. Yeah, because you know had the, had the young nerdy Peter Parker who becomes a superhero. Yeah, it's always stemmed from that. I always had. Um, that creative, imaginative side. Yeah. I think it's part of the artistic side of me. Yeah. My mom was an artist and I've also had an inclination towards that. I've always loved Dungeons and Dragons and fantasy and superheroes and all those things. Yeah. Um, I think it's our modern day myth- mythology. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, that's a cool way to put it. The time uh, past ancient Greeks and Romans, they had these heroes that they could look up to that they wanted to live their life by. Mm-hmm. And if, if you don't have enough Especially, I should say, if you don't have enough influence around you mm-hmm. that you really want to model your life after this one and that one and that one and this one, we can look to literature. And our modern time, for me especially, was superheroes. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, why wouldn't you want to do that? Yeah. So it's it's not um, like we have some decorating our house. Sure. And things. Um, it's not a huge thing for me as much anymore. Yeah. Much as much, it's fun. Yeah. I don't have the time for it. But I still 
love that aspect. You know, any Marvel movie comes out. Yeah. Always into that kind of stuff. Yeah. So which, uh, what do you think of the, what do you think of some of the trajectory where some of the characters are interworking between uh, Marvel and DC and all that stuff? They're overlapping, right? Are they? Uh, I thought there was, I thought Spider-Man was. Are you talking about in the comics or in the movies? In the movies. Oh, I don't think so. Not in the movies. They do in the comics every now and then you have okay. a crossover, but I don't think so unless I'm missing something. I thought there was a I thought there was some uh, argument over Spider Man in one of the recent ones that's coming out. I don't think it, so. it may not even be out yet, so it may be yeah. preemptive. But yeah, I may I may have missed this one. So what other what other kind of genre films are you into? You into westerns? You into like horror movies? What you, what's your gig? Uh, the horror movies I used to be into a lot, yeah. but those don't really scare me anymore. Yeah, I, I mean I just get nothing out of them. They're almost comical because you can they're so predictable. Yeah, you see when things come now. If we're talking about like a horror video game, yeah, now that will get you out because you're actually in the game. Yeah, we just recently got a um, Oculus, oh, okay, VR headsets. Yeah, Woo, some of those things are intense. Man. What, what do you think about the the future of that stuff? Like, how do you, how intertwined do you think the the metaverse, alternate reality, reality is going to get? I I think it's going to go really far, and not necessarily virtual, mm-hmm. but definitely the augmented reality. Yeah, where like the Google glasses come out and so on. Because uh, they're doing that with the Oculus now. Have yeah. you ever wore those things? No, I've been afraid. To, I mean, honestly, I've been afraid to because one, I'm obsessive. So, yeah, and yeah. I could see myself just like being the, the forefront of the metaverse, you know, right, if I right. get into it. But but also, I, I do have a fear of it. You know, I mean, got a 14 year old kid, and I'm right. you know, Chris is a teenager too. It's like I, I understand how. I mean, hell, we've even talked about it before. But you know, in the past, I've done drugs and they've been fun, yeah. but they weren't great for me. You know what right, I mean? Right. So it's like. This is one of those things that I almost view like a drug and mm-hmm. not necessarily at the iteration that it is now, but it's, it's always evolving and ever expanding. Yeah. Like the, the metaverse is what really scares me. Sure. You know, um, I was talking with somebody, I think it was Greg on the last podcast. We were just kind of touching on the fact that I wonder if it's not a corporate maneuver because, you know, we've trained these kids and we've actually trained people to just kind of come home after their nine to five and relegate themselves to a couch or they play a video game for hours and hours on end. Well, when I was a kid, you bought a video game and it was complete. Yeah. And then now every 10 minutes, I'm getting asked for a $10 gift card or a $20 gift card because the boards keep evolving. There's right. new clothes to wear and so on. And I wonder if uh, the metaverse itself didn't take from some of that and like, hey, if these people work from nine to five, that's the end of their income. But if they create another life where they have a job and they have friends and they can spend money in it, mm-hmm. they can profit more. So I do wonder if there's devious intention with it, as well as like the original intent of how far can we take the imagination? How, how far can we take this? Yeah. Do you see any of it as, as deceptive and devious as I do? Or do you think it's just purely fun? 100% <laughs> devious as hell. But, you know, you mentioned drugs. Yeah. How about alcohol? Sure. You know, alcohol could be just a mildly. Well, enjoyable. you have plenty right beside yeah, you. I like your selection. Yeah. <laughs> it could be a mildly enjoyable thing. Keep yeah. it in moderation. But if you have a problem with it, of course, they're going to advertise it to you. They're, they're going to feed it to you until it rots you, kills you. Mm-hmm. They don't care. Um, same way with this social media stuff, with the video games, whatever. The more they can suck you in and get your life run by it, of course, they're going to do that. Yeah. But if you can control, like we have an Oculus, but honestly, I haven't played it in weeks. Yeah. But when I do, I really enjoy it. Yeah. But even like Call of Duty, that's one of my big favorites. The older ones, I sit down and play a couple games and I'm done. Yeah. Because I don't want it to be obsessive and I don't have time for it. Yeah. So I like to get on there just to enjoy a few minutes of, you know, shooting people in the face and (laughs) (laughs) set it back down. Exactly. Um, But yeah, have you ever seen the movie um, Ready Player One? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So, of course, that's where we're going. Yeah. They already have the suits. 
yeah. that you can actually feel the impact. They have the moving uh, round treadmill, so you can actually move your feet in the game and not have to run around your house. Oh, okay. Um, so they're they're evolving, but just like in Ready Player One, there's marketing going on inside of it. Yeah, they're doing this too. Like now, you mentioned Metaverse. When you go into Oculus, there's a dashboard where you choose to go. Now, if you just choose to put it on and play a game, that's all you do. Yeah, you got to choose to go to that uh, Zuckerberg ran world. Oh, okay. You know. Now they're trying to get you to get more involved in that, but like even Xbox, of course they are. They want you to play these games now that it's not even a game anymore. It's how can we get you to spend more money? Oh yeah. Well, and that's the thing that was interesting to me. I saw a documentary. I I lose time. I mean, as I've gotten older, I've lost sense of time. Like yesterday feels like 1985, you know? So um, I'm just going to guess it was probably 10 years ago, but there was a, there was a video game PC only that was called like second life or half life. There's one called half life. Okay. Sure. I think that might be what it is, but it was Sims. It was Sims like as far as you were just in this alternate space and whatever. But I remember seeing a guy, it was in a documentary and this guy was talking about how he had made a hundred thousand dollars a year designing like uh, skateboards hmm. that you could buy in the game, you know, for $10 or something like that. And he was like, yeah. you know, I was doing this in my small town it was like I was going nowhere and then I found this and it's like I just transformed what I was doing into this game and started making a living. And then this this other fashion designer got hired by I think it was Guess in the video game to help them design some of their online stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking, man, like 10 years ago, that seemed like it, it just seemed like, wow, this is a contained kind of space. Like you have to pay, pay a membership. Yeah. But now it's being like opened up to the forefront. And it's just insane to me how we're just inviting more and more of this like advertising mm-hmm. into ourselves. And, you know, I was, uh, I was looking at Instagram the other day at some of the jujitsu guys that I follow and man, I understand that like they're making a killing on those BJJ fanatics, but their stream is just an advertisement for that stuff yeah. over and over and over and over and over again. Do you think that, Obviously, the information benefits the sport of jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. But do you think the culture of jiu-jitsu has changed because of the social media aspect where if I get good enough, fast enough, and I do these things, then I'm a star? Versus if I learn this technique and I build this life through jiu-jitsu, I can become a master. Do you, do you think that there are people still entering from both approaches? Or like for my take, I was one of the last of that era – as the internet was kind of taking off. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the only reason I have any popularity at all, because I was on the forefront of that when it was just really beginning to happen, like with YouTube videos and whatnot, guys were so secretive about their training at that point. And I was just wide open with what I was doing. So I think it was time and place. Do you think that in this country right now, I'm sure that parents aren't signing up five-year-old kids thinking their kid's going to be a superstar at jujitsu, but somebody who's starting at 25, they see the Gordon Ryans, they see the Craig Jones, the Nicky Rods and the Danahers and the Gary Tonins and on and on and on. Do you think that they're saying, man, I really want to be a master or I want to be on flow grappling? First off, more so in MMA. Yeah. The biggest majority of people who come into MMA to, you know, be a fighter, they don't want to do it because they love martial arts. Or they love fighting. They see it on TV. It looks really cool. They think that's a way they could be a little famous or a lot famous or whatever. Sure. And then I think it stems into jujitsu because you start with the MMA usually. Like mm-hmm. I don't think jujitsu is bringing anybody in at a high degree. Yeah. Uh, it's mainly because of MMA. People see jujitsu and then they start training. Unless it's through buddies or whatever. Yeah. But once they get into it and they see, 
Hey, if I'm cute and show my ass <laughs> and do an arm bar on Instagram, I get lots of likes and popularity. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. 100%, yeah. Do you think that the sport will have a peak point because of the volume and then regress because of that? Or do you think it'll keep going just because you can keep showing tits and ass or, you know, I think it'll, it'll, it'll keep going for both reasons that people do want to get in there and still be a martial artist. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the biggest change may, may detour the subject just a little bit. The biggest change I think is going to be the watering down Yeah, because of the people and wanting to keep the money coming in and keep the people coming in. Uh, it's already started some depending on which jujitsu organization or gym you look at Yeah, to where it's going to be easier and easier to get belts. Yeah. I'm yeah. glad you brought that up because that's something that I have a lot of friends um, that, that started either in around the proximity that I did, or they started a, a while after. And that's not something we really discuss in, in the gym very often. I mean, it, we see the belt progressions and whatnot, but it's always just kind of assumed that, to be a blue belt, you have to be able to hang and, and beat the blue belts mm-hmm. like it's, or to be a purple belt and so on. What is your kind of like mentality around how you give out belts? Mm-hmm. You know, um, your, your own personal preference for that. Is it, do you sometimes wonder if you should do more of the, uh, the McDojo and, you know, you get 10 visits, you get a stripe, you get 50 <laughs> visits, you get a blue, you know what I mean? Is, yeah. Do you, do you find yourself balancing with that or just from what you know and your experience, do you, how do you model your ideas around that? I jokingly say that um, I need to start doing more of the McDojo thing for the money. Yeah, yeah. You know, just, hey, man, you come in this many classes, pay your dues, you're going to be the next belt, you know? Yeah. Because um, some gyms are like that. Sure. There, there are certain associations out there that's known, hey, you put 40 hours on the mat, you're a blue belt. Yeah. Or, hey, we're going to list these techniques up on the wall. Memorize those techniques and you get your next belt. <clears throat> I have no desire to do that. Right. None. Um I have a different approach going back to what I said about competitors. Mm-hmm. If you want to be a competitor or if you just want to do it recreationally, if you're going to be a competitor, your path can be fast or slow depending on how well you perform. Mm-hmm. If you come into the gym and uh, you're just killing it out there in competition, you're a white belt, you're going out in every competition you go to, you're slaughtering the white belt division. Well, let's try it out in the next division. Mm-hmm. Just Put on a blue belt, see how you do. Uh, if we had to do it that way. Right. Sometimes it's done in the gym, right? But if you're a white belt and you're slaughtering blue belts left and right, and you're technically proficient, you're not just doing it on athletic ability or mm-hmm. powerhousing, you know. Like, for example, do you know what a Kimura is? Do you yeah. know what an Americana is? I don't care if you're beating blue belts and you still can't do those techniques. Right. You have a certain amount of basic things that, as an instructor, you know they should know at this level. Yeah. There's nothing written in concrete or whatever. This have a certain look. Yeah. Even in how they move. But now if you're just a recreational person, it's going to take longer most of the time. Yeah. Because uh, you're going to have to show technical proficiency because you're not a world beater. Right. You're not going to go out there and be able to smash the other blue belts in class when those are competitors. Right. Uh, met a guy the other day. He just moved in from Vermont and he was talking about his old school. And he said, I was curious how you do your ranking because, and he went to the spiel. At my old school, uh, if you were a competitor, it uh, it usually took longer because you had to do really well in competitions to get your next rank. Right? If you were just an average person, you get promoted pretty easily. So, see, everybody has a, kind of their own, yeah, yeah. own way of how they look at it and stuff. But um, I, I definitely have it to where it's based on you. There's yeah. no set time. You could be a blue belt in six months. Right. If you come in and you put the work in and you're – 
getting the techniques down, you're taking notes, you're studying. It's obviously you're technically proficient and you're beating people at that level. You're that level. Do you, th- do you have any sense of pride when say somebody from our gym is, you know, they, they're truly a white belt within our gym. Mm-hmm. They've gotten the challenge to go out and do the blue belt test, you know, not the blue belt test, but they test themselves against blue belts in competition yeah. and then they win or they do very, very well. Does that make you want to reassess your, your belt system or do you feel like, no, this is exactly how it should be? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Uh, the idea behind it is people can visualize this. They're hearing, let's say on a scale of one to 10 mm-hmm. blue belts are at a level two mm-hmm. and there's all these little increments between two and three. Okay. All the blue belts at the gym at this moment in time are at level two. Mm-hmm. Now this next guy who wants to be a blue belt, he's got to be at a level 2.1. Right. And the next one, 2.1, the next one, two. Now the entire level of blue belts has risen up. Now the next generation comes up, they got to be at 2.2. So the level always increases. Mm-hmm. You're never going to have it degrade because everybody's having to level up to attain, attain that next one. It's pretty widely agreed that the black belts of today coming up would have destroyed black belts 10 years ago. Sure. If you could go back in time or fast forward them in time or whatever, uh, blue belts, purple belts of today are beating black belts of yesterday. Mm -hmm. That's how much the level is increasing and the way people are training and evolving and the athleticism and so on. So I think that's a much better way to do it. It's a much more pure, a much more realistic way. We're not just promoting people like the karate systems have in general done Mm -hmm. to where your belt means nothing. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think it's a good feeling too. Like, uh, I I think in our gym, when you ascend to that next rank, it Mm -hmm. it means something. And not to say that somebody out there that's in a McDojo doesn't mean something to them. Sure. But I think your peers are looking at you like, yeah, he probably deserved that kind of thing. Like, I don't think anybody's ever questioned your judgment on a belt ranking or a belt, you know, advancement. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> maybe yeah. not getting one or giving one. Uh, they've they've <coughs> questioned me not giving. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. But definitely when you give one, like yeah. you know, it's it's. I would say it's universally accepted that they probably deserved it. But I think that's such a cool thing because throughout my life, um, I tell this story every now and then. But there's a great power lifter named Chuck Vogelpol, and Savage, just legend in the game, one of the original guys at Westside. And I mean, Louis said. Some people trained their partners. Chuck buried them. And that was that was like the way he was, just the most hardcore guy. And uh, after, I, after I was at Westside, I was at Lexington Extreme in Columbus for a year, and Chuck had gone over there to train. So I got to train with him for a year, and it was brutal. I mean, it was absolutely hell on wheels brutal. And it actually made me a worse powerlifter for a year. And not, not because Chuck was telling me to do things wrong, is that I was trying to impress Chuck more than I was trying to become a better power lifter. Right. So I pushed too hard at certain times and dealt with some injuries and whatnot. But nevertheless, uh, when we first really started training for a competition cycle, Chuck kind of retracted himself because he was competing too. So he was no longer just kind of like overseeing the training he was coaching or he was competing as well and never I mean, like hardly talked to us, like never hardly said a word. And I just remember – um, he had told me to put my squat suit on and he was going to see where I was. I'd squatted a thousand pounds before in competition at this point. And to his standard, that wasn't good enough. Like the level that I had squatted it to depth wise was not to his standard of approval. So he's like, we're going to find out what you squat. 
And I said, well, I squatted a thousand. He said, we're going to find out what you squat. So I did it to his level and I squatted 800 pounds and it was like humbling as hell, you know? And, uh, he then kind of told me, this is what you're going to do until you can finish it completely. He said, you're going to do eight sets of three with four Oh five against some bands or chains. And every rep has to be perfect. You're not going up and wait until you do that. Three months goes by and dude, I was fucking killing myself. Like I was making sure that every rep was spot on. Every detail was perfect. And he'd say, missed it. Mm. Like every time it was like set seven or eight every time. And then finally, after like four months, um, or at the beginning of the fourth month, I come into the gym and he's in an exceptionally foul mood. Uh, I was in a pissed off mood cause I was hating him. I was hating the training at the time, but I got through my eight set on the third one and he came over and he said, that's how you do it out of boy. And that was worth more than believing that I squatted a thousand pounds the way that he would have had it done or yeah. getting the pat on the back two weeks in and saying, good job, buddy, because I carried that with me and it changed my mindset forever. Like it literally changed how I approach squatting and how I coach my teammates moving forward. Like if we held ourselves to the highest standard in our gym, like if this is the level we squat to in the gym and you go out there and a judge gives you a pass a half inch higher an inch higher than that, you're better for it. But if we train to that inch high and then a judge calls us on this, fucked yeah so i very much appreciate your approach to that in 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 many ways but it's also a relative thing that i think when you talk to people who have reached the high level of sport they've always had a scenario where somebody kind of checked them and brought them back to life but speaking of competition um i told you that i want to compete again not necessarily immediately soon but i want to put together an idea and i would kind of like to share with the anybody that listens and also hear your take on things that you think I need to work on things that you think would help me in the competition and what you would kind of build for me as a competition cycle leading up to that. Yeah. First and foremost, I think you've already touched on it. So, and you are working on it, but slow down. Yeah. Get very technically clean mm-hmm. um, because you try to rush stuff a lot and you miss steps. Yeah. And those can literally make or break the technique, things like that. Um, other than that, it's going to be, really sitting down with you. I know you'd probably like to have some clear cut. No, it's okay. But really assess what you feel your strengths are mm-hmm. and what your weaknesses are. Watch your role. See what you really are hitting more than anything else. Because a lot of times people think, hey, I love leg locks. Mm-hmm. Leg locks are my thing. But when you watch them roll, they're hitting Kimuras all day long. Yeah. That's their jam. They might want it to be leg locks, but it's not really their thing. They're not really, really hitting it there as well. Um, but that, the technical aspect is cause you've got the strength down, mm-hmm. you know, cardio is good. You know, you run, you're doing yeah. all those things too, but getting more and more technically proficient because especially for the big guys, almost all big guys are trying to grapple like a big guy, mm-hmm. which means you're trying to use all their straight and their strength and their weight to their advantage. So if you get a big guy that can move like a small guy mm-hmm. and be technical, he cleans house. Well, and and not to even try to remotely, you know, compare myself to a Gordon Ryan, but I did watch, like I said, a lot of his matches, and I found myself getting. I was watching a lot of Nicky Rod stuff and even Craig Jones stuff, and I don't necessarily think that that's my game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of shied away from Gordon's stuff as like watching it for potential avenues for myself because I just thought he was so exceptionally good that mm-hmm. it was just that was him. But I watched, and he's a slow burn guy. And even Danaher mentioned it. He said, Gordon's never really the most explosive guy in the room. He doesn't do things fast. 
And that's when the, the wheels started turning in my head. Like maybe this is what I need to do. Like find my positions, hold them, have a clear path to what I want to do next. And then build on that, but just use the strength that I have in the way that I should rather yeah. than, because I was watching that video that we took with Mike the other day mm-hmm. and even looking at it, I think in my head, when I break down movement, as long as I start from point A and end up in point B, like just fucking get there. And that was, that was my mentality in powerlifting. Like, I don't care if your backgrounds and your arms flare on a squat, like if you yeah. stand up with it, you stood up with it. And more so when I talked to you that day in the front telling you that my kind of outlook and approach had changed, but also the application has still got to change before it becomes a reality. Yeah. But I watched that video and I was, I wasn't embarrassed of myself because it was, it was fine, but I was looking at, it, I was like, man, I got up sloppy. I didn't get on the back. Right. And I know that in a competition situation, those things would have fallen apart. Like, or a, a sage, it's possible for sure. Yeah. A KG competitor would have known to flatten out a little better or do something different. Yeah. But looking back on my previous competition, um, it was kind of a shock like to, to how much expenditure there actually was and how much more serious I realized I needed to take my conditioning because I was training hard. I was training in the gym hard, but I wasn't doing that extracurricular conditioning. Yeah. Do you think that conditioning is the, the win point in jujitsu. I mean, you got your technicality Mm -hmm. guys are evenly strength. Then it comes down to conditioning, right? In an athletic uh, or in a competition setting, especially. Yeah. Because you're, you are being matched somewhat equally with someone at your skill level. Mm -hmm. So strength can be the deciding factor. Your metabolic conditioning can be the deciding factor, technical ability. But if there are, the technical ability is pretty even, Mm -hmm. which it should be right. If it's two blue belts, then strength, conditioning, and all that's going to definitely be a huge issue. For for the cardio conditioning, the metabolic conditioning, the local muscular endurance, and so on to not be an issue, your own technical ability has to be far superior than your opponent's. Yeah. If they're equal, then the condition is going to be. And even worse, if they're far better than you, that condition is going to have to be there because you're going to have to really drag them into that deep water being tired. Do you have any kind of like presets like – I know an athlete is conditioned if they can do X do you, or you know what I mean? That mm-hmm. you have, do you have any kind of presets for that? Because what I'm doing right now and I'm just picking your brain for what it's worth. I've been doing five K right around 31, 32 minutes. Mm-hmm. It, it, that for me is a pace that I'm winded at the end of it. Mm-hmm. My knee doesn't hurt tomorrow. I can still go to jujitsu tonight. I can come and do my pull-ups, chin-ups and whatever later on after that. Do you think that there are aspects of that slow burn conditioning that need to be extended? Or do you think that a person should do more like explosive conditioning, you know, sprints or jumps or med ball throws or anything like that, that would get you into that explosive nature that jujitsu can be? Or do you think if my goal is to be a slower player that I should focus more on that slower burn type conditioning? So your long term cardio. Mm hmm really builds up the capacity of your heart to pump more blood per beat. Mm-hmm. When you stay below that anaerobic threshold, you're increasing the size of that left ventricle to pump more blood. So that's when you need those 45 minute or so runs, mm-hmm. low burn, get that heart really pumping. So you get your heart and your lungs all in good shape. Now we get in there in jujitsu and you get winded. What, yeah. the, what the hell? Well, your local muscular endurance for that activity is not up where it should be. 
you don't have the mitochondria account to process and so on and so forth. So your body is now requiring more oxygen because those muscles are requiring more of that ATP, all that. Yeah. So now we need to do that metabolic conditioning of getting those muscles to be more efficient at the oxygen your body's already producing. Mm. So getting your aerobic side down is a good baseline. Keep that up. Now we got to work in that local muscular endurance. And that's where stuff like um, Javoric complexes, um, what are they called? Uh, uh, the 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off. Oh, yeah, the, the Tabatas. Tabatas, yeah, those yeah. type of things. Yeah, but but since we're doing jiu-jitsu, we have to do an entire body. Like Randy Couture was really big on the Javoric complex. Mm-hmm. He'd pick up a certain amount of dumbbells or barbells. If he's going to be fighting for a five-minute round, he'd train for five to six minutes. And he would never set the weights down. And you go through every single body part constant movement, constant motion so that your body is simulating what it's going to be doing in jiu-jitsu or MMA. Yeah. And those methods work great because obviously if you can get on the mat and have round after round of hard rolls on a regular basis, that's all you need. Yeah. But you got to have some really hard rounds and that's hard to get partners that are willing to do that over and over and over again. So the outside conditioning really helps out a lot. What do you think about some of the, and this is not an attack on the schools or the players. It's just, it's just an observation and a difference of opinion maybe. But what do you think about some of the schools that have guys that are rolling four five, six hours a day? Do you think that's truly beneficial to the player or do you think that it's, it's better in small doses or do you think that that's only something reserved more for the elite? Those guys that are doing five or six hours, if they are doing that much, in fact, they're not doing it all at once. Yeah. It's spread out. And they're having different kinds of roles. Mm-hmm. Like it's really easy to get in there and do lots of technical roles. Mm-hmm. You know, we're just flow rolling. We're drilling certain techniques and going through certain types of mentalities. But some of the roles are like really hard for conditioning. That's what most of those guys are doing. So it sounds like a lot. And it is, you know, if you have a job and everything else, it's hard to get in that much. Um, I think it was Hodger Gracie once that said, uh, if you want to be a world champion today, you have to be training six, seven days a week, five, six hours a day. Yeah. You're just not going to get it. You're just not going to. Used to be in the past, you could be a world champion training, you know, twice a week, a couple hours a day. Yeah. You're just not going to do that now. Um, I think it's definitely relative to the person. It's kind of like the Cam Haynes thing. Yeah. You know, he can run a a marathon a day. Yeah. You can't go out and do that. Right. You got to build up. Well, and, and two, and you know, I say this stuff to myself too, because I'm, I'm an abuser of myself. Like if I know that, effort begets reward yeah. and I can, I can pummel myself into the ground in that process. But, you know, I think people looking at Cam Haynes, you know, they want to get out and they want to start running. They might need to realize that Cam has been running for 40 plus years and his father yeah. was an elite runner and he's an elite runner. I mean, by all, by all accounts, he's running what a mile a day when he's five years old. Yeah. Something insane, yeah. <laughs> you know? And, um, but Cam is, Cam is just a different kind of dude, but I don't think that every person that views that, needs to go out and try to run that half marathon or that marathon. And I even, I'm saying this to myself now about jujitsu is like, slow down, hammer these techniques, get the rep. I know, like I know shooting my fucking bow. The only way I'm going to get more consistent with my bow is repetition. I know the only way I'm going to build muscle is repetition in jujitsu for some reason, because I'm a brain dead idiot sometimes. (laughs) But, but I also know that head through the wall has always been my way. Yeah. And, I think the the break that I took, you know, when I said I was doing all the hunting, allowed me to realize that jujitsu probably never going to be a world champion at that. Probably never going to be an elite level 
descriptive of that, but I can become very good at that and I can ascend through the belt rankings and it can complement everything else I'm doing. So it's a part of my, it's a part of my process now. And I, you know, there's times when I put more chips in the hunting side, there's times when I can put more chips there. But I think for me, I do need that well-rounded approach because I, I will blow my life apart for singular focus things. And that's a very dangerous drug for me is like when I find something that I love, which I do love jujitsu, I can go too far into it and ruin it for everybody around me. Yeah. You know, so trying to figure that out, um, as I go, but what kind of, uh, what kind of competition do you think I should look at? Do you think I should look at something like a Fuji or a Naga or something more like Jordan did with the submissions? Um, what do you think would be your suggestion for me? Before we get into that, I want to step back to a comment you made. Yeah, okay. Care. You said, I know when I'm shooting my bow, I have to have everything right, bam, bam, bam. But for some reason, when I get into jiu-jitsu, I'm a fucking idiot. My, my take on it. When you're shooting your bow, you have a very quantifiable result. Yeah. Either the arrow hits the bullseye or you have a tight shot group or you don't. Right. If you don't hit the bullseye or your group, pattern is all over the place there is a quantifiable result you can see that you're fucking up yeah so you go back over the fundamentals you go back over the basics you get the reps down to bam you get the result you want well the result in jujitsu is to make your opponent tap well if you're able to out physical your opponent and you get the tap it must be right right although i can watch it and say mm, he's messing this up and that if he needs to slow down and work on that technique a little bit yeah now there's your squat coach from earlier you get pissed off because he kept critiquing you, critiquing you, critiquing you. Yeah. And that's the dilemma you run to as a jiu-jitsu coach. Mm-hmm. You can tell an athlete that they're not doing well. They're not doing something correctly. They need to do this, whatever. And then the ego starts playing. Not to say that you, per yeah. se, but anybody in general. Well, I'm getting a tap. I'm getting it done. Yeah. Yeah. You are in the gym in a non-competitive setting. Somebody maybe even not your size, you know. Now, when you go to compete, now you have maybe a different result. And even if you get the win, you go back and actually see the video. Yeah. You're probably not going to be happy with it. Like, well, yeah, that's exactly you, how you I got felt. The tap and I slapped the slop through a win. I'm not saying you slopped through a win either. Yeah. Yeah. There's people in general. So it's, it's harder to understand within ourselves that we need to be technically better. Yeah. When we're winning. Yeah. You know? Well, I think that's uh, I mean, that's ultimately why I broke my knees. Like yeah. I went to that competition that day Um and it's a funny story because the guy, I didn't know him then, and uh, I liked him, but they they kept trying to get me to compete. I was like, no, I just I just won the two big comps in Australia. I mean, I was like, as as royalty as as a active lifter could be in powerlifting at that time. That was it. I was there. So I hung out in Australia for a couple of weeks after the competition. Toured around, saw great people, great places, had amazing food. Stopped in Mexico, which. I picked Mexico for a party spot and it was two weeks of partying and then uh, came back home and I was like, didn't even feel like myself. I was just like, so I was on such a high of different levels and I get back and they had asked me to come compete at the uh, Staples Center where the Lakers play as the USPA uh, American Open. And I go out there. Well, I turned it down a couple of times. Like, no, I can't do it. I don't have enough time. I'm under trained. I'm kind of decompressing. And they kept calling and like, uh, well, we'll cover your flight. We'll get you a rental car. We'll get you a hotel. We'll give you this. Well, you know, it just kept incentivizing. And they called me and they said, well, we got a kid that says he can beat you. Fuck, I'm there. Like, let's go. So I condensed all my training. You know, I took 10 weeks and really shuffled it into about four and a half. And instead of saying, 
I should cut some of this off and just do upper body session, lower body session together, reduce the total amount of times I train, but maybe increase the volume per session. I was doing five days a week, like doubling it, you know, trying to go hard. So I get out there and it was that idea of even at 85%, I could beat this kid. And that was, you know, if you were to look at my jujitsu to make a long story short, my skill or my technical side may only be 70% proficient or 75% proficient, but the strength curve allowed me. And, and in that case, I was thinking the experience curve and some of the, just the nuances of competition. I, I figured right. I could play my cards, but nevertheless, you know, it, it broke my knees and broke my heart. So, yeah. um, but that is something that I think as a, as a man, I've always struggled with is like, I have always been a physical person. I've always been rewarded for my athletic ability. I've always had some kind of, um, status within myself around that, you know, ego, I guess, but jujitsu, it's just not, it's just not a real thing, but I still lull myself into that space. Exactly what you're talking about. Well, I got the tap or I got the choke, you know, whatever it is. Um, but I am actively seeking to get better through that process of not being that guy. Right. Like I would rather be, I mean, just sitting here with you, I would rather be a much more highly regarded for my technicality than that. That dude's a beast. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. And so I'm trying to juggle all that and remember it when somebody puts a move on me that it's like, Oh fuck, I know I can blast out of this thing, but how do I find my way out of this? Yeah. Thing? Yeah. yeah. So, I think I told you once before we had a big, huge guy in the gym once named Brian Krugman mm -hmm. had a twin brother who's we nicknamed the beast, right? <laughs> he was a monster. He's like six, six. Yeah. Huge. Um, and I would always tell him because he, nobody can outpower this dude in the gym. Yeah. He's throwing everybody off or whatever else. And I'm like, that's good. But what are you going to do with somebody your size? You're going to have to get technically better. Mm -hmm. I give him all these reasons. And he was really level headed and tried to work on it. So on. he moved away, moved to California came back in for a visit. He went to a very famous jujitsu and fighters gym. I won't mention who his name was, but sure. they immediately gave him a blue belt just yeah. because he was so much bigger and stronger and was beating everybody else on that. And he said, uh, they gave me a blue belt. I, I, I know I'm really not one because, you know, you said it and you're right. And it's like, I'm not technically better than these guys. I really don't deserve the blue belt. I'm, I'm glad I stuck with him. Mm -hmm. And some may not agree, but <clears throat> It's easy to do when you're in a gym, but once again, go up in your, not, not you, but somebody like him, go, go to compete somebody in your weight division and then see how you do, see if yeah. you're technically better. And you may be, who knows? Um, but that's the trap that you get into when you're not looking at real technical ability. You're just looking at, well, I'm getting the tap. Yeah. Well, those you know? guys at the Naga that I went against, I think they were, they both told me they were diesel mechanics. So one of my biggest strengths and kind of probably fallbacks is my hand strength, right? right? My grip strength. It was neutralized, yeah. you know, uh, and cause they're working all. The time. Oh yeah. yeah. And fortunately, I mean, was able to, to do okay in those matches and, and be fine. But it was like, that was a real, like when I went back and watched the matches, I'm, I'm able to detach and watch myself just very honestly. I sucked. Like <laughs> I, I, not, not that it was, um, oh, it was your first competition. Yeah. Too. Yeah. But you know, it was like, it was also not that I sucked so much, but like, the feeling that I had of control versus the control that I witnessed yeah. were two different things. And right. that's when I knew that something had to give. And it took me another five or six months to get to the point where it was like, okay, it is the fact that I'm overpowering 
and underutilizing technique. So I feel like I'm in a good place um, to really, well, I even told you the other day, I said, I don't know if it's the way I'm looking at class or the way you're teaching class, but I feel like what you're saying is coming in better. Clicking better. Yeah. And I think probably it's just that admission that I got to get this down. Yeah. Um, do you ever have any problems with people where they just don't get it? Like they just don't grasp what they need to be doing? Yeah. And I, more often than not, I think they're doing it to themselves. Yeah. They're overthinking, overcomplicating. You know, there's, as I say in class, there's listening and there's really listening. They're, mm-hmm. not, they're not really um, getting out of their own way. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll see it again and again. I'm doing a very simple move and somebody will overcomplicate it. They'll put their hand over here. Then I got to do it. No, just, just do this one thing. Like, yeah. oh, oh, well, that's simple. Well, that's exactly what I just showed. Yeah. So something's going on that you're seeing it. You're putting it through your brain. You're reworking it and coming over here. You know, just it's, sometimes it's much easier than what people realize. Well, it's as simple as the other day when um, you were doing the, we were doing the heel hooks. You said, just grab that chunk part of the calf and set your hand, you know, mm-hmm. and that was instantly different from when I was finding the heel hook to when I was really like, they knew that it was deep water as soon as I set the heel hook, you know? Right. right. So it is, it is truly uh, nuanced and detail driven, but I guess to kind of wrap this up and, and dwindle this down to a final question and, and really take as much time with it if, as you want, but looking at your life and looking about where you started from and where you are now and the things that you've done, what's left to be done as far as question one. And where do you see yourself just in the storyline of the people's lives that you've coached? You know, how, how important do you see the gym to your people? I like to think that's very important. Mm-hmm. I'm basing it partially on the feedback that I get. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like I talked about Ernest Williams. The first story is, you know, I, I continually get people who, who either come to me directly. They're within close proximity saying how, much it's meant to them, it's changed, but I'll get emails, mm-hmm. I'll get social media, I'll get phone calls and they'll just thank me so much that, you know, I really didn't appreciate it when I was there, but I miss it so much. Or I've really had a hard time finding another gym. But I felt at home mm-hmm. as well, or uh, that it's a click is good or it, it enhanced my life so much. Or, or maybe I got upset on a path. I've got a, a really good buddy that because he came to my gym, mm-hmm. because he got into this, he got into a certain career path mm-hmm. that was so rewarding to him. So that, that means so much to me. Mm-hmm. And while it's nice to have certain goals, like I have a goal of uh, it's, it's almost like somebody who says they want to be a world champion, whatever. Eh, it's a goal, but is it really, I mean, how, how big of a goal is it really? It's, it's more of a fantasy goal. Like, sure. I think any instructor would like to be known as the best instructor in the world. Mm-hmm. So we try to be the best instructors we can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just want to keep improving what we're doing. I don't have any high aspirations of making tons and tons of money. Mm-hmm. You know, I would like to do little improvements. It's like see our gym grow a little bit better. Sure. Maybe have another gym. We talked about Lexington again. You know, I had a gym at Lexington before I got cancer. Yeah. And uh, worked on that. But um, just keep doing what we're doing. I mean, I'm 52. Life's not over, but I'm also sitting into that pacing life now. Yeah. I'm not, I don't have that same 20, 30 year old, go for it, go for it. Now I'm just, I'm just cruising. Yeah. Chilling. I still want to help people become whatever it is they want to be. If yeah. they want to be a world champ, if they want to be an MMA fighter, whatever it is, to, to, to be that for them, that gives me just so much more satisfaction than anything else I could possibly do right now. 
Yeah. Well, man, this has been awesome. Uh, you're awesome. I love the gym. I look forward to uh, open mat tonight and just thanks for everything you do that, that the average person looking at your Instagram or looking at, at Facebook, social media, whatever doesn't see because you do a lot and it means a lot. So I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. Thank, Thank you, you very brother. much. Appreciate it. Yep.